and welcome to the Money Pot. I am Sanjeev Kalita, and I'm your host today. We are live at Money 2020 here in Las Vegas, and very excited to bring you this episode about Instant with Sunil Madhu. Thanks for having me, Sanjeev. Hi. Uh, so, Sunil, could you talk, uh, just state your name and title? Sure. My name is Sunil Madhu. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Instant. Instant's my sixth company. Sixth company. Well, that, that's so, you know, I guess you really have a lot of energy. I started young as well, so it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt. Your sixth company. Yeah. It sounds like the what you really like to do is start companies. Yeah, lots of problems I like to solve, and I've got an mind all going all the time. So, <laughs> so you know, it's uh, there are so many uh, issues. Uh, I've been on this journey in the governance, risk, and compliance market for quite some time. So, so how did you decide to get into starting companies? Well, my Parents didn't uh, raise an entrepreneur, yeah. that's for sure. Um, I was basically asked to uh, uh, fit into the cogwheel and find a career for myself. Yeah. So the first half of my career, I did exactly that. Mm. I'm a computer science and MIS yeah. guy. And uh, I started off my career in IBM, which was my alma yeah. mater. And went into security and started with network security and database security and then application security through the yeah. 90s. And I kind of did a career switch uh, back then in the early 90s where I met the founders of this company that was pivoting called Integrity. Mm-hmm. They were a checkpoint firewall reseller. Um, and I joined them just at the, at the pivot. And I just was blown away with the whole startup experience and the camaraderie and the culture. And I never really felt like I yeah. fit inside the enterprises, you know. Yeah. And I never looked back. So I learned a lot under the wings of that, those founders there, Deepak Dineja, Barry Boykoff. And the company went public in 2001. And we brought a standard along with it into the industry called Single Sign-On. And Identity mm-hmm. Federation standard called SAML, which is used by about 40% of the global enterprises in order to federate people's yeah. employees' identities. Yeah, and that experience over seven years uh, just sort of taught me a lot and, and uh, got the itch from there on. And, I, you know, it's, it was just a progression, you know, solving for the problem of identifying who we are, which in the early 90s was a huge problem in the enterprise because new employees had to remember mm-hmm. 20 or more passwords for all these applications. And, uh, you know, the, there was a progression from there to based on who you are controlling and what you can, can and can't do in the enterprise. So I started another startup called Securant, which we exited to Cisco in mm-hmm. 2007. And then I decided to step a wee bit out of security in my comfort zone and try to learn something new in a different domain. So I started mm-hmm. a startup in marketing, yeah. which I exited to WPP. And then I came back into security on the on the back of that company called Upscotch, um, with this idea of combining social signals to figure out who we are online uh, for identity verification, and that was the foundation for Secure. The name actually uh, comes from social and secure combined, and I grew that as its uh, CEO for nearly eight and a half years, brought it to double digit revenue with inside of IPO. And as I was growing Secure, I saw this other problem which required me to kind of change the business model and product in Secure a wee bit, which quite honestly, the board was not happy in doing in a, in a company and scaling up. So I left the company to start Instant uh, in late 2019, early 2020 is when we founded uh, the, the first version of the product. No, that, that's fascinating. So I, I mean, I, you talked about uh, 
you know, not necessarily being, you know, you know, how you can, one can be a cog in a machine in a large company, but instead you've created multiple machines. Yeah. I try not to create machines. I try to create more better culture than that. Yeah. So, so actually that, that is my, a little bit of my question. Like how, now that you're on the sixth company, like how, uh, you know, you, you obviously learned like how, uh, what, what do you do better now than you did in the first one? Well, it's an interesting thing. Um, I tell people in life, we learn from failure mm. and mistakes in startups, we learn from success. Mm. Because with every new startup, there's new ways of failing. Yeah. So fa failure is normal. Yeah. But you take the things that succeeded in the previous companies, you end up using that to speed up things in the next one. Yeah. You know, it kind of works. Yeah. So that's that's really the, the main uh, goal. And to instill um, kind of a culture of people that aren't afraid of change, mm. um, aren't afraid of uh, failing, as I said. Mm. And can iterate very quickly. Those are some of the things that I, I really focus on in, in the companies I built. And, and so that's really cool. Um, what was something that you did in as, as a success in in like SoCure that you've brought into Instant? Um, I hired my first hire in uh, Instant was my head of HR, my chief of staff, uh, Kimberly Nash, and she's amazing. She, you know, I wouldn't have been able to come this far without her help. <laughs> especially because of the pandemic. Now, normally in most startups, we don't really go about hiring HR till like a couple of years in when your team's like approaching 50 people and stuff. Yeah. And and I think that a lot of founders end up making a mistake there because culture is a hard thing to manage. And having a stakeholder working alongside you to take care of that is paramount. So in this, you know, insecure, I didn't do that. And I ended up having problems with uh, insubordination from my co-founder and, you know, all sorts of growing pains yeah. that startups have. And, and it was just uh, tiresome. So when I started this company, uh, one of the first hires I did was for HR. The, the pandemic happened and we had to go remote. And, uh, you know, without Kim's help, keeping everybody together, it's a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a good example, I would say. And uh, another, another uh, you know, big issue with uh, building companies is try, you know finding product market fit. So with instant, like, sort of, how how did you think about that product market fit? I usually don't like wandering around the desert for product market fit. Yeah, um, I'm a, a market research guy, so yeah. like, I I really believe that before you write a line of code for a tech company, yeah. uh, go understand the market you're operating in, who's in it. What's the gap? If you build it, will they pay, et cetera? You know, do all of that research. It might take a year, you know, to do prototype stuff, you know. Do all of that before you commit to building the product. And I think if you don't do that, you end up doing that, wandering the desert, trying to figure out how to fit the thing. Whereas you got, if you had input from the customers who are going to pay for it from the outset, mm. when you go and sell it, it'll fit, you know. I love that. Um, so... One of the things that that's interesting is you're like, you'd already kind of knew the problem, right? From your your work at SoCure, you'd already kind of had it. And the fact that you have kind of been a serial entrepreneur means you sort of start a company and then you see another problem and then you start another company and see another problem. Well, it's the side effect. Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, um, I tell people it's the effect of being in the industry for so long, you know, and I'm a geek as well, which I'm proud of. So I look at how to use technology to solve problems for people and operating in this governance risk and compliance industry, uh, working with identity as much as I have, I've been able to plot the future in a way. 
the best way to make the future happen is to invent it. So. Yeah, that's that's quite that's the aphorism, right? You're like, if you want it to be a certain way, make it that way. <laughs> so, so when when you built in, it's still in the process. Like, where do you see the market going, and how does Instant fit in there? So Instant's an entirely different um, kind of business model, mm-hmm. uh, or I've been told that by every uh, venture capitalist I've pitched recently, which is unique. It's a good thing. So if you look around the floor here in this conference every year, one of the main themes you'll see is around fraud prevention and identity verification and KYC. It's it's crucial to all financial yeah. institutions, right? It's the foundation of it. And each year you'll see more and more tools, vendors. And one thing I learned selling Secure, which I look at as a very good screwdriver to solve the problem of fraud and identity verification that's sold into most people's toolboxes is the is the fact that no matter how good the tools are, the toolbox overall isn't that good. The the false positive rates of all of these tools add up. So no matter how good the tools and the toolbox tend to be, every customer is left holding the fraud loss liability on their own balance sheet. And for some of the larger banks that have to comply with Basel III requirements to keep capital reserves and treasury against their risk exposure, this could be billions of dollars of working capital that's tied up in treasury. So I had this brain fart to essentially arbitrage the market. And so what Instant is, is essentially fraud loss protection insurance. It's a fraud risk insurance. That's the simplest way to put it. So we're the first company in the world that will help businesses take up to $100 million of loss that they hold in their balance sheets. And most businesses have that uh, you know, somewhere in that range per line of business. We are the first company that will price that risk. Mm and essentially help move that risk off the company's balance sheet. And in doing that, we provide Smoke Alarm, a thin layer of technology that helps prevent a lot of that fraud in the first place so we don't have to have unnecessary claims. And so the arbitrage is essentially the the value of the uninsured balance sheet losses people hold yeah. minus the diminished claims that when we move that risk into the insurance market. So we're not, just to be clear, we're not an insurance company. We're an yeah. insure tech company. Yeah. We provide the SaaS layer that allows us to move the risk from the organizational silos in the industry, pull that risk and move that into the insurance marketplace. Fascinating. And uh, When we were talking about Instant before, you guys have a product uh, that's basically being used even by like the state department and by passport services it's literally called passport right so that that's that's not a new thing that we're actually launching we just announced it at the show yesterday right and so i want to um, talk about yeah. passport because i think that um you know we've all we've all noticed that there's certain parts of it that are just broken and i think uh this is the kind of thing that we would we're interested in addressing across the marketplace. Yeah, it's it's a it's a largely unsolved problem in that in the course of my journey in the last 20 years, when we created a single sign-on for the enterprise, that evolved into open authentication technology for the internet. So today mm-hmm. you have the ability to authenticate or identify who you are to an application by virtue of using credentials. And you get those credentials after you sign up and you're mm-hmm. accepted by the business, right? Typically, it's user IDs and mm-hmm. passwords. Uh, no matter how hard people have tried to kill passwords, mm-hmm. they persisted because they're frankly easy and people are lazy, and so it's it's easy for them. But they're not secure, right? Yeah. And people tend to use reuse yeah. the same password multiple times across different sites. So if someone compromised the password, you know, all of the sites you have access to where you've established accounts are compromised. Then there's the, the notion of mm-hmm. friction, right? 
as a customer, I want to get to the product or service as easily as possible. But instead, mm -hmm. I have to deal with all the security and compliance and risk and governance stuff that's in my mm -hmm. way. The business has to put that stuff in place because they have to protect themselves. But th that's mm -hmm. all layers of friction between me and the, and the product. Mm -hmm. So we kind of looked at this idea of combining identity with a reusable kind of pass and have trust bindings in them. And by mm. that, I mean, if I were to present that pass to someone, just the pass itself and the nature of the pass satisfies the non-repudiation aspect, the security aspect, the way you were previously verified, which mm -hmm. pieces of information about you were verified, what level of risk were those pieces of inf information validated to, mm. what is the KYC status, when does the KYC expire, you know, all of that information is imbibed into a single pass, mm. right? So when that pass is presented, when you want to sign up for a new product, or you want to authenticate yourself, you just present the pass. You don't need to have passwords. You don't need to have multi-factor authentication. And you don't need to keep giving up the same pieces of information about yourselves over and over and over again, like we have mm -hmm. to do today. Yeah. So... The technology itself is built and possible because of two standards that have developed over the last you know, decade or so. W3C has ratified both of them. One's called verifiable credentials, and that's the, the pass format, if you will. And the other is the proof of ownership of that pass, so that when Sanjeev gives me your pass, mm. I know it's only Sanjeev's data that's there in that pass, and no one else could have faked that pass or stolen your data and you know. So the non-repudiation aspect and the ownership aspect. The ownership aspect is covered through another standard called decentralized ID, mm. which involves the blockchain. Mm. And um, the combination of these two things, because of uh, those two standards mat maturing mm. uh, and being adopted by the W3C, is the thing that makes this universal pass possible now, and it's timely. And just to, to be clear, I don't have government customers just yet at Instant, they're even longer uh, of a pain to sell to than financial services. Uh, so, and we're a tiny little company, but we'll get there. Um, the 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 point I was making was that the governments implemented the standard themselves. So, Department of Homeland Security, for example, is working on verifiable credentials and decentralized ID for passes the government can issue to citizens, like pass digital passports of the future. Um, and the private sector is also uh, starting to adopt the technology. So it's it's starting to gain legs very quickly. Well, it solves a lot of issues. And I think the password thing is interesting um, because <clears throat> we hate passwords and yet we won't give them up. So do you have any insight into why that is? Yeah, uh, psychology. Uh, we as as people, we are built to expend the least amount of energy, conservation of energy, if you will. And so most of the things we like are involve lazy behaviors, which involve no new learning. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the way nature's optimized us. You only adapt. Yeah, as, it's as like stereotype everything. To. Just you know, don't have to think about it. Um, you know. Um, so in order for something to succeed, it has to be that easy. I mean, I can remember a password, everyone can. And for the first time, there's a technology that does that. It actually is very lazy behavior. It's so lazy, in fact, that it just requires a single click or the scan of a QR code to obtain the pass and to, prov to uh, provide a proof request to hand the pass over. 
I, I, I'm just uh, curious. Uh, did you do any like anthropological research of people using, you know, your service and sort of like I, I'm fascinated how that again uh, product market fit. You know, so we went out to the market and we said, "Would you like to eliminate friction truly? Yeah. What's the least friction you have? One click, right? And that click satisfies the um, the governance and compliance needs from KYC." It satisfies the fraud prevention and risk management needs. It satisfies the security needs of identifying who you are with a strong authenticator. So we we told them, hey, you know, this standard and this technology can allow you to eliminate all of these legacy, you know, mishmash of layered technology that's causing friction and drop off, especially for the newer demographic that's, you know, instant gratification generation, right? Um, and their feedback is what we took uh, before we built yeah. this. And then we started identifying which of the, those companies wanted to actually pilot this. And it turns out a lot of credit unions love this solution, primarily because they're nonprofits and they don't have a lot of resources to manage that layer layers of technology. And they want me their members to have frictionless experiences, especially as they're sort of rapidly digitizing and they're uh, creating marketplaces of different types of financial products that they just want to bring together from different vendors, right? They don't want the the members to have to sign up and sign on fifteen thousand times. Yeah. So uh, they are the early adopters in the technology curve. The way we're positioning the solution here in the market is for brands to get value out of this technology across their silos of businesses. So today, when I open up a checking account, I've got to sign up, and then uh, when I want to get a loan, I've got to sign up again, and then when I get a credit card, from the same bank, right? So we're we're saying, look, you can eliminate that friction truly. And while you're giving your customer that instant gratification feeling, you've solved another problem for yourself, which is the notion of cyber liability risk uh, caused by data breaches because you're holding on to everybody's information in a centralized manner today. So if someone breaches that database, you lose and your customers lose. So this is, for the first time, a win-win because the technology says push the customer's data after it's been verified back to the customer and then mm -hmm. ask them to present that data to you whenever you need it right it, it's it's really interesting i i i spoke to the ceo of a, of a qso a credit union service organization uh about like 2 3 months ago and i asked him so you know what's your top priority and he's like fraud and security and i was like what's your number 2 priority he said fraud and security yeah, so, yeah so. <laughs> i mean it's in this day and age it's it's a tangible thing everyone wants to cut costs reduce opex lower kind of their loss exposure that's instant value delivered to them but at the same time the ceo and the cfo have a mandate to try and grow the business right so you can't one sort of stands in the way of the other in a way because if you open the faucet of customer acceptance you also open the faucet of fraud so our solution solves for both of these in a very nice manner because we not only are able to give you the authenticator and reduce the friction, but we're backing that with a fraud loss liability protection. So any customer that's accepted with that pass, any business that accepts you with that pass, for example, can rest assured that if any fraud happens, say someone stole your password and got in whatever, the business is not going to lose money, right? I keep thinking about this because I do think that it's always at odds. The nature of what we want as customers, as you said, is anything that is the easiest. Um, 
the the shortest point between A and B, right? We we would. Yeah, we might, <clears throat> we don't we would not think that way though, because we think from ego. Yes. <laughs> we think much higher of ourselves than we actually we, are. We, we all know that, yeah. you know, that there's this stress to, especially with the introduction of real-time payments and the launching of FedNow in the United States. And, and we've had this going on and the, the amount of fraud with, uh, like, uh, say, you know, bank-to-bank payments that are instant uh, and and everything that's going on in that space. We also know that every... Every point of growth there has increased fraud levels and fake accounts and all kinds of craziness. Fraud is normal. Yeah. That's the other part that I was thinking about this, right? There's the psychology of we want it to be easy, point A to point B. But then we also forget that fraud is sort of part of the human condition. And so when you're thinking about it that way, how is it that you're thinking about, uh, you know, the fraudsters are pretty good. They're, they're getting trickier and trickier. So how do you guys think about outsmarting the fraudsters? So the, this is the conundrum. Everyone said, if you go about asking people, do you care about fraud? Ego. Yes, we care about fraud. Meanwhile, in real world, hey, <laughs> send me a picture of yourself to see which celebrity you look like. And by the way, give me the last four of your social. Or... I'll give you your your rock star name and it's your address with your social security. Yeah. You know, um, this is yeah. the the dichotomy. The other thing is, when I say fraud is normal, fraud is a crime. Sure. Uh, it has motive, means, and opportunity. So the motive is make money. The means is use all this, you know, instant uh, transfer money, transfer, you know, and all the complexity. they do make a lot of money and they, they're good yeah. at that. Yeah. And so if if you consider that uh, the making the money, the the motivation... And the means are kind of standard now, right? You can you can take them as standard, granted. What you're left with is opportunity. So I tell people the nature of fraud is you don't think of yourself as a fraudster. But let's say you're unemployed and you have a family to feed. And you're walking down the street and there's a Citibank ATM that's malfunctioning and spitting $100 bills into the street. How many people who think of themselves as non-fraudsters, regular people, will take that money off the street and stick it into their pocket and keep walking? Versus going into the bank and saying, hey, your ATM spitting money into the street. That's the nature of fraud. Fraud is normal. It's not the fraudster versus us. Anyone given the right opportunity and the pressure cooker circumstances will commit fraud. And I always think about all the heist movies. There's always all these movies where you kind of celebrate the um, the underdog criminal getting away with uh, just a little uh, bit of cheating Hood against the big all guy, of that, right? right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, I mean, these fraudsters are not like Robin Hood. They're not doing no, 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 I know. But I'm just goods. saying we have that mentality that sometimes we sort of celebrate the p- person who's just kind of able to get away with but you it. But you've got to, you know, the ingenuity of some people, it just astounds me. You know, so so I pretty much sort of treat fraud as it's going to happen. So, if, you know, one of the things we've done different in an instant in dealing with this problem is to not care so much about the fraud itself. You have to worry about it. But is to care more about the losses. Mm. Right? I tell people, if you're selling gold bars and you're selling paper clips, you're going to get fraud affecting both. But what do you care about? The gold bar losses or the paper clip losses? So in our in our unique way of shifting fraud loss risk and insuring for fraud loss, one of the things we do is reshape the loss curve. So we, for example, can insure against first-party fraud. There's a a few companies coming out with solutions around first-party fraud management. Uh, they talk the talk, but at the end of the day, they're still leaving you with the losses. We're the only ones that'll actually take the losses off your books. So, first-party fraud—the nature of it is, 
everyday ordinary people, real people, submit their real information with the intent of defrauding you, which is a psychological thing. They woke up one morning angry at a brand, they want to defraud you, right? How do you stop that? So it's not possible to stop it. That's the answer. But you can reshape the losses from it. You know, so if you can predict, for example, what percentage of those people are likely to default on the on the loan, and when the default happens, what's the magnitude of the default? And using that to attenuate the, the fraud, and in some cases, letting the fraud in so that you can accept more customers. Uh, these are newer concepts that the, I, I think the, the industry is just sort of learning, and we are pioneering. So you, you, and you, you talked about how you, uh, the instant solution has, I guess, a smoke alarm you described it. And, 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 and so can you talk a little bit about that? As yeah. Well? So uh, we price the risk and we underwrite the losses. That's the simplest part of it. We provide a very thin layer of technology. It works very like Google Analytics. It's a line of code that's added to the UI layer of the application, whether it's a mobile app or, or a kiosk or uh, online web. The line of code is invisible to the end user. It just sits in the background running analytics. But the purpose of that is to use it to stop different types of fraud before the fraud happens. So for example, the majority of the solutions, the tools that are sold here to stop synthetic and uh, stolen IDs in the market involve cross-referencing your personal information across a bunch of different databases, right? But I could tell you you can stop that fraud by just checking to see if the interaction with your application is with a non-human. Because the fraudsters are spraying and praying 10,000 stolen IDs across 100 businesses. They're not sitting in front of your website typing in 5,000. They'd be stopped, right? So if you look at the nature of the attack and you say, well, I can stop that by just checking if it's non-human because I know the outcomes are going to be bad if it's a bot. Stop the bot, stop the fraud. You don't even have to look, look at the personal information. So these are the types of intuitive and non-intuitive things that we've taken into account in building that thin layer of technology. So that, in essence, filters out a lot of fraud for us and then provides a whole bunch of signals beyond just personal information. For example, if you want to solve for first-party fraud losses, you can't be building machine learning models on personal information because those models are going to become racist. You're going to have zip codes that exclude people. Uh, redlining happens that way. So beware of any first-party fraud solution that just says, oh, we just need your name and address and shit. You need financial data to model first-party loss. So, you know, we've done all of these types of innovations backed. We've taken the complexity of all of the technological layers for risk and compliance and security um, away from the end user. Again, going back to laziness, right? How much more lazy can you get than copying and pasting a line of code? Yeah. So that's the, that's the smoke alarm. And that allows us to reduce our exposure and reduce the claims when we end up taking your losses and moving them to the insurance market. That, that, that's, that's wonderful. And that's the perfect place for us to wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all for joining me. And thank you to all of our listeners, both here at the show and our podcast audience. If you have any ideas for the show, write us at podcast at money 2020. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. We love our fintech nerds. Thank you for joining us.